0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the world is reaching 1 million COVID 19 related deaths and the case increase here in Ontario suggests that the peak of the second wave is upon us, are we ready? The New York Times released a report on Donald Trump's taxes and the U.S. President announced his Supreme Court nominee over the weekend. Reggie Cicchini from Global News in Washington joins us with all the details. And the Commonwealth Games bid will go before Hamilton City Council again in about a week. Lou Fiporti from that group joins us to talk about the latest developments. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've got concerns on this side of the border. As a matter of fact, we have concerns on a global basis now with what's happening with COVID-19. Uh, as we've been talking about on the program, we get a little lax, I think, through the course of the summer months and figured, yeah, we can let our guard down a little bit because the numbers are going down. Maybe the worst is over. Uh, now we're being told that uh, the second wave of COVID-19 is upon us. And uh, how bad is it going to get? Well, it's pretty much dependent upon how we decide to respond to this too. Uh, the world is reaching about 1 million COVID-19-related deaths so far. Uh, the number in the United States, of course, is uh, just over 205,000 and counting, sadly. And uh, the numbers here in Canada are, are on a relative basis, uh, not the way they should be. Uh, still some concerns being raised here about the number of new cases. Ontario and Quebec especially are uh, very concerning when you look at some of the numbers, especially compared to the, where they were a few months ago. So what is happening, and what can we expect Pleased to welcome back to the program Allison Thompson, who is an Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Services at the uh, Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, Allison, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: There are going to be blips from time to time. We understand that. But uh, how concerned are you when you see the numbers? uh, Let's talk about here in Ontario.
1: Uh, I think we're at the point where we know enough that this, is probably going to be the start of a second wave if we're not careful. And so the trend of these high numbers every day that we haven't seen since May is really, really concerning, and you know, now is the time to do something about it.
0: As, and it's not as if we don't know what to do, is it? I mean, you know, we've been talking about this, well, since January, really, uh, and we've we, you know, we've refined, and think, an awful lot of the things that we should and should not be doing. Uh, but there is a protocol that we should be following. I mean, you know, we all know, you know washing the hands, of course, the face masking now, and, and social distancing, uh, and trying to keep our bubbles small. Uh, we haven't done a very good job of that. Is that the only reason why the numbers seem to be going up?
1: It seems like it. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of other things going on in terms of people spending more time indoors now, uh, now that the weather has been cold at, at various points this month, and we've also got the return to school of university students as well as public schools being reopened for, for children. So there's a lot of different factors involved here, and the numbers are showing that it is people under 40 who are making up about two-thirds of the new cases.
0: Well, and there seems to be some falsehoods that have been circulating out there in the last little while that maybe have provided us that false sense of security. Uh, one, of course, was uh, the musing, well, it was Donald Trump. But I mean, there have been others that have talked about herd immunity uh, with COVID. Uh, and uh, my understanding is the numbers are nowhere near where they should be uh, for that sort of immunity. I think we're only at about 20 percent of the population that has the, uh, the virus. And you have to be over 60, don't you, to even have a discussion about that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I mean I don't think we know what the threshold would be for a uh, uh, herd immunity uh in the in the community at large uh but it doesn't seem to be, you know, as high as it would need to be for something like measles which would be in the mid 90s um but yeah, certainly, you know, probably at minimum we would need 60% of the population to be immune to have any kind of protective effect.
0: And that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. I I don't know what the time frame for that would be. I mean, I think the the takeaway here is that look at (laughs) – don't count on that or because it may or may not happen, and we don't even know if a vaccine is going to move us along those lines. And that's that's one of the unknowns, I guess, we have uh, when we start talking about uh, vaccines or possible vaccines, Allison. I know that you know, there have been a couple of setbacks with some of the research teams that are putting this together, but even if they do develop one in the next four or five months, whatever the case might be, uh, we have no idea just how efficient it's going to be yet, do we?
1: No, we really don't, and and part of that is because we don't actually understand um, the immunity uh, that people would would get from having had the virus yet. So we don't really know uh, what part of the virus to target. We don't really know um, you know which is it the T cells that provide the protective effect? Is it antibodies? You know, we're still pretty uh, early on in that kind of research. So. It's going to be a lot of trial and error to figure this out. And, you know, even if we do unlock the mystery about what is uh, what does immunity look like to COVID-19, we just we don't know yet how effective a vaccine will be. It may only be, you know, 70 percent effective. So you just you just have to be patient, I think, and hope that the science catches up.
0: Let's talk about some of the other things that have been going on. And, and, and there's, I guess, a good news element to this anyway. Uh, mortality rate is down with COVID-19. Uh, there's still many, many people being hospitalized, of course, and, and many ICUs are, are still full with, with those patients. Uh, but the the treatment of COVID, uh, I, I think, you know, folks have made, I think, huge strides in that in the last little while. Uh, it, it, can that sort of research and, and that data actually help when it comes to looking at a vaccine? In other words, we seem to be treating... We're not curing it, but we we seem to be getting people back on their feet.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how much we can learn from effective treatment options about about the immunity piece of all of this. Um, I think that for sure we are seeing the, the discovery of, you know, drugs that have been around for a long time being actually quite effective. Um, and, you know, it'll... Uh, you know it'll depend somewhat on on supply chain issues too, for those mm-hmm. medications that we find do work. Are there enough of them um to to really provide uh, fair access to everybody uh, and in who should be prioritized for access to to treatment as well as a vaccine is an ongoing concern as well.
0: And, and we've been told that already by Dr. Tam and others, of course, on this side of the border and Dr. Fauci in the states uh, that don't expect the day that they say, hey, we've got a, vi- or a, a we've got a vaccine now that you can just line up and get it. I mean, you know, I, I think we almost tend to take the flu vaccine for granted now that, hey, I can go to my pharmacy around the corner here and, and get my flu shot. Uh, and that's wonderful. But uh, any COVID vaccine that's going to be developed, it's, it'll be a while, I would think, uh, Allison, before it's going to be available to the public
1: absolutely and and you know we are even seeing that there may be flu vaccine shortages now so yeah. we may be looking at a prioritization scheme for for flu immunizations as well this fall um we'll have to see you know what that supply chain looks like and you know who goes first is is probably a valid question to be asking you know certainly people in long term care settings should be prioritized and and maybe healthcare workers as well um, but you know, beyond that, how how are we going to provide access to a flu vaccine? Is another big question.
0: Let's talk if we could for a couple of seconds about the flu vaccine. Uh, it's important every year to get the, your flu shot. I mean, I, I think hopefully most people are aware of that. I don't think everybody does it, but why is it more important this year because of COVID nineteen? Why is the flu vaccine so important and and being? You now we've got huge campaigns underway right now, and it's about time uh, to make people aware of the fact that they should absolutely get their flu shot. And it's is it because of the the double barreled action of of the flu and COVID nineteen that could have an impact on 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 our communities?
1: Exactly. So I think part of the, the puzzle is, you know, how do we figure it if we've got symptoms of COVID or influenza? Well, if you have the influenza shot, the chances are much less likely that it is influenza. So, you know, it, it helps in detecting uh, who should be going for testing for COVID, but it also um, will alleviate some of the stress on the healthcare system as well. And all, obviously it protects you from from an influenza illness which you know a lot of people think they've had the flu before but it's a respiratory illness it's not um a gastrointestinal thing and it's it's nasty it can be really debilitating it can be down for the camp for a couple of weeks so and we do have many many deaths every year from influenza especially in the elderly so um it it is important to to take it every year but this year in particular because it helps us figure out who to go for test, who needs to go for testing prevents You know, the spread, we may not see as much spread because we are taking other precautions this year. So it'll be interesting to see whether masking and social distancing has a big impact on influenza rates, too.
0: You raise an interesting point, though, that uh, you know about the flu, and, and you know because I know especially the, the 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 deniers, the COVID deniers, and sadly you see so many of them on social media. It's just a flu. I, I don't think they have a full comprehension of what the flu is. I think a lot of us, as you mentioned, uh, through the winter months may become ill and think, oh, I've got the flu. Uh, if you're over it in a day or two, it's probably wasn't the flu. There's a, a thousand different cold viruses, aren't there? Different things around there that can, can have effect on gastrointestinal and so many other different parts of our body.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we don't routinely test people for influenza when they go to the doctor's office. It's um, the way we figure out influenza infection rates is sort of after the season is over, we look at, you know, how many um, excess numbers of influenza-like illnesses were there, and then we sort of estimate what the rate is. So it's not one of those things we routinely do laboratory testing for. So um, m- most people... They think they've had it, but they may not have. You know, it's definitely gonna knock you out for a week or two.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you talk to people in the medical profession about that and they, they, they give you a pretty fair description as to how this is going to impact your body. Uh, not something you want to go through, nor is COVID for that matter either. Uh, survival rates seem to be on the increase, but I think, I think we have to pat ourselves on the back a little bit for that because we are supposedly, uh, I think gearing up now and starting to do these sorts of things that we should have been doing all along, uh, vis-a-vis face masking and hand washing and things of this nature. Uh, what about the numbers, though? I mean, I just you know the numbers in Quebec, as bad as the Ontario numbers were over the last four or five days, is not that much worse in Quebec. And we're told now that Montreal and Quebec City have moved into what they call red alert. Uh, what does that entail? Is that are we looking if the numbers don't get any better? Are we looking at, at total shutdowns again?
1: Um, certainly, that's that's an option. I think Ontario has said that they want to take a more targeted approach to dealing with this. Um, rising numbers of COVID cases in Ontario. So they want to do more targeted interventions aimed at rather than sort of a blanket approach, shutting down businesses as needed in certain areas um, rather than the whole city, for example, or, um, you know, doing a lot more within schools and long-term care settings um, to manage the numbers. But I think, you know, that's going to require a certain amount of capacity to be able to monitor uh, and, and do the contact tracing and the testing that we need. So it remains to be seen whether that's going to be enough. Um, and certainly everybody wants to avoid another lockdown, but it may, it may be that we're headed in that direction. It's just very hard to tell at this point.
0: So obviously, those numbers are, are something we have to pay attention to. Uh, the other is is the testing element. I mean, again, some people will simply say the only reason these numbers are higher is because more people are getting tested, and we're discovering it. But I, I don't I don't take any solace in that. I'm glad that we're getting more people are getting tested, but the fact that we're seeing more and more cases uh, still tells us that the virus is out there, and and it's still a, a major area of concern.
1: Absolutely, and and you know but the thing about testing is makes absolutely no sense to just sort of randomly test people or to allow people to nominate themselves to come and get tested. That's why they're rolling back that open access to testing, because you need to be able to interpret the findings. It's not as simple as you have it or you don't, because when we test broadly in in communities where there isn't a lot of COVID, you end up having enough false positives that it It's actually more harmful to do that kind of testing um, because of the burdens it places on people. So that false positive rate and the false negative rate have a big um, interpretive piece to them in terms of, you know, what's the prevalence in the community where you are testing, what's the sensitivity and specificity of the test itself. And so, you know, just getting a new test approved um, is not that straightforward. We need to know, you know how accurate is that test and what's the baseline in that community before we can interpret those results. And, and so just having people be able to access testing is a big waste of money. You see in Hong Kong where they just did a very, very broad testing strategy. They spent millions of dollars on it, tested a ton of people and only caught 42 cases. So it it can be a real waste of money to not have a targeted testing strategy that's based in some kind of scientific theory.
0: I know a couple of people, this is going back to the springtime, when uh, the COVID first wave, of course, was, was upon us, uh who had just come back just before the shutdown uh, started they just come back from jamaica i think it was and, and had some what they thought were the symptoms and uh, they both called the public health office in their various communities and were simply told look at you really don't need to get tested if you feel you've got it you probably do isolate yourself for 14 to 20 days and if it gets worse then then you call your doctor and they, both of them followed that and i got to tell you uh just so people don't think this is a, a big deal they went through hell for about 14 or 15 days with the, the symptoms and the feelings and the way it was ravaging their body but they got better and uh you know they're all you know recovered now but probably did have covid so tests aren't necessary in every case are they
1: um i think you know it's it's helpful for us to know where the positive cases are so you know they wouldn't be included in that case count so yeah. Um, as long as people follow the directions properly, that's fine. But I think, you know, for us, we really do need to know what the prevalence within a community is to be able to interpret those results. So, you know, it's it's sort of a double-edged sword in, mm-hmm. in some ways. And, and you know, with any, any diagnostic test like that, there's always um, some false positives and some false negatives. And so, um, you know, it's a judgment call and it's a scientific issue about, you know, what that... How, how many can you expect um, when you're testing in a, in a certain population? And, you know, with this outbreak, that's two weeks where you can't um, see people and you can't go outside. You know, like that, there is a large burden associated with false positives here.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Alison, always insightful and uh, reassuring after we have these discussions. Thanks so much for the time today. It was great talking with you again.
1: You too. Take
0: care. Take care. Professor Allison Thompson, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump woke up to uh, yet another headache, I guess. Uh, The New York Times reporting today that... uh, Trump has not paid tax in 10 of the last 15 years. Uh, there are a lot of numbers to go through here. Uh, they say despite uh, receiving about $427.4 million in income, uh, he didn't pay taxes, about $600, I think, one particular year, and on and on it goes. Uh, a lot of reaction to this and uh, lots of controversy, of course, as always, surrounding Donald Trump. To talk about this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Good morning. This is a story that has been going on for quite some time, trying to find out exactly what's going on in Donald Trump's financial world. Uh, Were you surprised that the Times was able to come up with this information today?
2: Well, I mean, look, uh, there have been reporters around the country uh, and really around the world working feverishly to try and get their hands on any kind of financial disclosure from President Trump, not only for the four years that he has been in office, but for uh, years and and, and decades before that, when he's really refused to kind of make any of his public assets and public disclosures uh, uh, more or at least financial disclosures rather more public. Uh, But what The New York Times has done uh, really has kind of uh, done a deep dive into two decades of these financial patterns of the president, uh, where he was, where he is, where he could be going. Uh, and it's, it's, it is jaw-dropping and astounding to see the numbers that they have been able to come up with and put in print, uh, which really has both the president and the White House on defense this morning.
0: Yeah, the numbers are staggering about uh, some of the stuff that's gone on here. Of course, he's, he's talked about this in the past, though, Reggie, saying that he likes to uh, minimize his tax bill, uh, because he says it makes him smart. Uh, I, I didn't hear too many people this morning in the first reaction to this, uh, using the smart moniker in Trump. I mean, it seemed to be quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, it's, this is rather telling, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, any of the wealthiest of the wealthy people, no matter if you're in the US or if you're in Canada, wherever you are, you're going to try to find as many loopholes as you can in what's oftentimes complicated tax law to uh, lessen what the burden is going to be that you owe to the federal government in income taxes. So it's no surprise that given Donald Trump's wealth, whatever that number might be that he tried to use the laws to his own advantage. Uh, what these numbers show, though, is that the president may have simply just overinflated what his wealth was, uh, overstated what the, the, the income that he is generating is compared to the loss that it's generating, and how this potentially puts a, a target on the president as a national security threat in the office currently, and if he's reelected again in November for another four years, because the numbers and the losses that are piling up against Donald Trump are staggering and they also become problematic.
0: Uh, we have to, I guess, put this into context, too, and because uh, the numbers, as you say, are, are the headline here. Uh, but this, as, as the time, uh, the Times reported to us and reminded us, this is information that Trump gave to the IRS. So it's you know, as to whether or not those numbers are, are actual numbers or if they, these were inflated themselves, we really don't know at this stage, do we?
2: We don't know uh, at all because the New York Times again they reported on the figures that were inside these documents. They didn't show the documents themselves. We also don't know, uh, you know, what the accounting is that went into these documents uh, that were handed over. Uh, we know the president has used the IRS. As a bit of a scapegoat here to say, look, they're, in, they're uh, auditing me right now. That's why I can't release any of this publicly, despite the fact that the IRS for four years has come out to say, look, we could be investigating and auditing all we want. Uh, that doesn't stop you from being able to put out any kind of financial disclosure outside of the couple of page forms that have been released by uh, by President Trump, White House and the campaign over the last four years. But what he's been trying to shield from public view over the last four years uh, are numbers that that we said are staggering, you know, $400 million in debts that are going to be coming uh, need to be paid off sometime in the next three, four, possibly even five years overseas incomes to the tune of 70 or $80 million and less income tax paid to the United States government than he did to governments like Panama or Turkey uh, or the Philippines or India, and that's where those causes for concern are when it comes to national security.
0: Well, yeah, maybe we'd uh, d- dive into that a little deeper for our listeners, Reggie, About the concern about this, it's not just that he didn't pay tax, it's where some of that income was coming from. Uh, it, you know, there was always, for the longest time, suspicion, rather, that, that there could have been a Russian financial tie. Now, there's nothing from what I saw, anyway, in these documents, but you did raise a couple of interesting income from panama income from the philippines and and turkey of all places and and the concern here is really national security in other words is it the fact that he owes them money influencing u.s foreign policy it's a question that i think is worthy of asking at this stage
2: absolutely it is and it's a question that's being pushed back on uh... ferociously right now by republicans uh, but more notably by the White House as they try to deflect any of these questions about uh, the, the potential foreign influence on the president. Now, it is worth noting the New York Times said that there is nothing new when it comes to Russia outside of what was previously reported, outside of discussing uh, a more profitable Miss Universe contest that took place uh, in Moscow, and, and President Trump, or at least Donald Trump at the time, uh, took in more money than was anticipated. But knowing full well that there is additional and lots of money coming in from foreign governments, but most notably Turkey, uh, which oftentimes can act as a bit of an adversary to the United States, uh, there are questions as to whether or not this puts President Trump in a vulnerable position, whether or not he becomes more malleable. uh, And the influence that happens not only within the White House, but extends throughout the Republican Party uh, becomes more favorable to countries, Uh, that that may pose problems for the U.S. down the line. And that's where these concerns are four years from now. If the president does remain in office, what does that do to America? What does that do to national security? Uh, And and what kind of questions does that raise about the president, not only his personal life inside the business world, but also inside the White House?
0: And and as you've reported previously, uh, it would behoove him then to get reelected because the minute he becomes citizen Trump, uh, he's he's open to, to prosecution, isn't he?
2: He is. Look, there are a number of, of financial investigations that are ongoing uh, uh, linked to Donald Trump uh, within the Southern District of New York. Uh, and when he is no longer in office, there is an opportunity here for any kind of investigation to be able to lay charges, because as we learned during the impeachment, uh, you can't charge a, a sitting president because of underlying uh, uh, kind of underwritten documents inside uh, the Department of Justice. But what we're learning is that there's nothing that would stop any kind of bank from coming after President Trump when, when, uh, when loans are due from potentially foreclosing on a sitting president or having a sitting president have to declare bankruptcy because they're not able to make any of the payments uh, on these loans that are coming up, again, to the tune of more than $400 million. So the IRS, the banks, they could come after President Trump. They don't need to wait for him to come out of office uh, in order for them to get the money that they're owed
0: there's a, there's an ego thing here too, quite aside from what may be illegal or legal, whatever the case might be. Uh, I mean, he's always he's always boasting about the fact that he's a great businessman that you know I never lose. you know, I'm never wrong. Uh, some of the the losses that he's uh, purported to have given to the IRS here are significant, astronomical I would I would think in some cases.
2: Well, and they echo the kind of uh, stories that we've read about Donald Trump for decades now in that he's not the business magnate that he once said that he was. Looking at the losses from his casinos, looking at the losses from failed business ventures uh, into stakes and into kind of personal products, uh, there have been a series of losses that have racked up under Donald Trump before he was in uh, public office. But he's created this larger-than-life persona of him that he is a billionaire, that he does have more money than you, and that makes him smarter than you as, you, as in the American. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of how he, he elevated himself into this status uh, that put him into the political ring. There is a large part of this country that listens to, believes. Uh, and follows what Donald Trump has to say. Uh, And demographics really works in the president's favor here, where he oftentimes surrounds himself with a base of non-college educated white men in middle America who will buy into what the president has to say. They don't understand tax laws. They don't really understand the financial world. And if a billionaire comes up to them and says, I'm a billionaire, this is what I know how to do, and I can help you, they're more likely to listen than those college-educated whites who listen to Joe Biden and maybe have a better understanding of how the financial world works.
0: It also, in a kind of a bizarre way, validates an awful lot of the stuff that uh, Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, has talked about. And I guess it's in his new book now, which is out on on the bookshelves, uh, that Trump would routinely inflate the value of of certain properties so he could get money to pay a loan against that, or he would deflate the value of of certain properties uh, when it came to the IRS to try to suggest, you know, it's not worth anything where you think it is. Uh, These numbers seem to indicate that Cohen was bang on.
2: Well, not only that Michael Cohen uh, may have had a better idea as to what was going on in Trump's financial world, uh, but there are also uh, public documents that have come out linked to write-offs that the president or at least Donald Trump made in order to, uh, you know, put him in a better position to not have to pay any income taxes. Uh, And those write offs are huge outside of devaluing his his real estate properties throughout parts of New York. which His family had done for decades before Donald Trump was uh, was was kind of a a key player in, in Trump world. Uh, There are uh, write-offs that we see, you know, $70,000 from when he was on The Apprentice just for hair, $100,000 for hair and makeup for Ivanka written off as a business expense, but also seeing a business expense of $700,000 written as a write-off. Uh, to Ivanka Trump for, uh, for uh, uh, services paid, uh, and then Ivanka Trump had to claim those so they became public record. She was claiming it as income as Donald Trump was claiming it as a tax write-off. These are the questions that are being raised now as to what was going on. Was there potential estate skirting, uh, estate tax skirting happening within the Trump organization as well that means that he really has been withholding taxes that are actually due to the U.S. government?
0: uh... and as you mentioned this is uh, this is only information from the irs uh, the southern district uh... Vance uh, junior and, and others have been continuing their investigations over the last little while we don't know what they're uncovering but uh, amazingly enough though uh, not the only headache that donald trump has today uh, the other of course uh, from last week and i know you've been reporting about this through the weekend is the uh, the uh, elevation of course of amy coney barrett to fill the vacancy on the supreme court uh... because of the death of rbg uh... there is a process in place uh, there's also a time it, it was pretty obvious from uh, the way they were talking on Saturday, Reggie. Uh, they want to get this whole thing done before November the 3rd, before Election Day.
2: They do want to get this rushed through as soon as they can, because if there's any kind of change in the Senate uh, that potentially takes away any R votes for uh, for uh, Barrett, uh, that could potentially hinder uh, any kind of uh, elevation to the high bench uh, on the court. So there is a quick rush to get this through. It is facing uh, facing swift pushback from Democrats who say it's unprecedented. They're playing the words back from people like Mitch McConnell uh, and people like Lindsey Graham, who wouldn't allow for Barack Obama's nominee to go forward through hearings uh, back uh, in the last campaign. Uh, But Amy Coney Barrett is a favorite amongst Republicans, both the conservative and the religious-backed Republicans, because of her stances. Uh, And there are are legitimate fears amongst Democrats that this could not only alter laws that come before uh, the Supreme Court that have already been set, but change the course of how laws are going to be decided going forward with a more staunchly conservative bench. Uh, And there's fears that generational change could be taking place in this country if Barrett is pushed through before the election.
0: Well, and the two things that come to mind, obviously, that the De- Democrats were talking about, and this is before they even had confirmation that Barrett was actually going to be the nominee, uh, but one, of course, was the Affordable Care Act, which I guess goes before the Supreme Court the week after the election, and uh, the other one, of course, is, is the Roe versus Wade, uh, and again, that's not there yet, but I mean, it will be eventually before the court, uh, and she's more than just a swing vote. She she gives a solid majority to the conservative right, doesn't she?
2: She does give a solid conservative majority, uh, and she has said during previous hearings uh, that when she was uh, heading to the appellate court uh, that she wouldn't use her religious background and her affiliation with the church when making decisions uh, on how the country should move forward with legal precedent and with law. Uh, but in previous papers, she has written things along the fact that she has written things along the fact that uh, Roe v. Wade was uh, was not properly decided. Uh, but when it comes to something like the Affordable Health Care Act, like you said, is coming forward, that's Obamacare. There is a fear that this could be overturned. This was Donald Trump's Signature campaign run in 2016 to repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, saying that he's going to create some kind of new health care plan that there are no details for. But he does now have a potential conservative majority that would rip that kind of health care away from Americans, making it more difficult for them to be getting any kind of insurance, but also potentially taking away from uh, pre-existing conditions uh, for, for Americans in the middle of a pandemic when COVID-19 could soon be considered a pre-existing condition. This is going to be a massive battle that plays out across the United States.
0: And, of course, as you've been mentioning and reporting, uh, this will be uh, the third time that uh, the Affordable Care Act has come before the Supreme Court. Uh, in the previous two decisions, uh, the court upheld it, but Chief Justice John Roberts was the swing vote. He was the deciding vote in both cases, considered to be a conservative, by the way, on the court. But he supported the Affordable Care Act both times. Uh, his vote essentially would mean nothing if uh, if uh, Barrett is on the, co- in, at the court by then.
2: And this is what the concern and fear is for Democrats with the way that these laws are coming back towards the Supreme Court. Uh, and unless like you had mentioned before, with Roe v. Wade, these are longstanding precedents and laws that exist in the United States. But there are a number of state level governments that are bringing abortion laws to the Supreme Court to try and overturn it at the state level. And with a conservative uh, voice now kind of headed to the bench uh it doesn't matter what she, uh, what the chief justice has to say because he would simply be outvoted by what the majority is going to be uh this is why there are calls amongst democrats to have joe biden if he wins stack the, uh, the supreme court with additional right uh, uh, left-leaning justices to bring that kind of balance back to a more centrist and less centrist uh, uh uh kind of sitting in order to either keep laws in place that are here right now or at least provide for more representation
0: Actually, of a more immediate nature is a comment that uh, Trump made on Saturday, I guess it was, Reggie, uh, suggesting he wanted to have uh, Barrett on the, uh, on the bench in time for the election because the Supreme Court may have to decide the election, which kind of let a little bit of uh, the, the strategy out, I guess, that if, in fact, he ends up losing this thing, he may well appeal to the Supreme Court to, to make this election invalid if he ends up being the loser. And I guess he's figuring with uh, now three of his own people as appointees there uh, that the court would support him.
2: And there are calls from Democrats to have Amy Coney Barrett take herself out as a conflict of interest if this does wind up before the Supreme Court. But it is worth noting here that the Supreme Court itself has said that they really don't want to have to decide any elections going forward. They did it in 2000 with Bush v. Gore, said that they never wanted that to be used as precedent again. Uh, So this really does kind of call into question if this will wind up in the Supreme Court, because there are a number of options. Election law is complicated down here. There is a good chance uh, that neither of the men end up getting the Electoral College votes that they need. This then winds up in the House of Representatives for a vote to be taken there. You know, whether it means Nancy Pelosi becomes president, whether it means state delegations decide on their own who's going to become president, there are options to keep this out of the Supreme Court. And that's what Democrats are hoping for.
0: Uh, got about a minute left here you mentioned the process at the beginning of our conversation uh... there has to be some sort of an investigation there's usually of course uh... the nominee coming before a senate committee which is going to be stacked with republicans of course because they have the majority in there right now uh... they seem to think that they can have this done by the end of october is that re- is that reasonable It's 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 faster
2: than any other Supreme Court justice in history. I believe Ruth Bader Ginsburg may have the fastest uh, nomination time, but it was still in and around 40 days or 50 days. Uh, A few weeks from now, it is unprecedented. It is quick. Democrats don't really have the numbers on their side to be able to hold off and filibuster this. So if this does move forward at the rapid lightning speed that Republicans are looking for, this will be a guaranteed uh, victory for President Trump with a third justice on the bench.
0: It's a very fluid situation, and uh, changes sometimes almost by the hour, which is why we uh, look forward to your reporting on uh, Global National. Reggie, thanks, as always, for the time. Great talking with you again today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, Global News down in Washington, D.C., where there's a lot going on. Oh, and by the way, the uh, first debate uh, is uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday evening. It's going to be, of course, between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the week. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The other day we had uh, PJ McCandy on from the uh, the Carmen's group. And, of course, uh, PJ and many others in this community are involved in the Commonwealth Games bid, uh, which will be coming back before City Council in just a little while. Uh, they've been busy uh, during the time that, uh, that we've been trying to get some info, insight as to what's going on. Uh, I know there's been a lot of conversations with different levels of government. I wanted to bring a loop Lou party under the program a spokesperson for the hamilton 100 team to actually talk about this uh lou thank you so much and glad you could join us today
3: it's good to be back bill
0: a lot of things I want to ask you about here, and I know there's a report from PricewaterhouseCoopers that you'll be addressing, uh, city council, uh, in just a little while, and, and PJ tells us that there's a lot of very pertinent information in this, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the overview there that, that I saw in the press release, but also some of the work that you and the others have been doing behind the scenes. Uh, I know you've had a number of discussions with, uh, senior levels of government about, uh, the, their commitment to a, a situation in a Commonwealth Games bid for this area. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh,
3: I believe that PJ did speak about the economic analysis, but the work has extended far beyond that. I think your listeners will recall that we were in front of City Council on August 10th to chat about the status of, of the hosting plan, as it was. And um, having had Mr. Grevenberg and McPherson and others speak to the issue, what we wanted to convey was that a lot of work had yet to be done to come up with the plans around venues, around cost around the implications to the city and the benefits to the region before it could put back before the public. And much of that work at this point has been done, I'm pleased to say. Uh, We're in a position now where our venue plans, which uh, include a number of contingencies depending upon what all levels of government see as priorities, whether it's reducing cost or uh, increasing a legacy asset, uh, will be presented. We've made considerable progress around uh, affordable housing and how that should be uh, put to the public. We've undertaken an enormous amount of work in preparing for public consultations that will start this week, Wednesday and Thursday, virtually, and information about that can be found on our website at Hamilton2026.ca. We've engaged the city's auditors, KPMG, to assess uh, our uh, budgeting for venues to ensure that there is independent comfort and confirmation that the impacts that we anticipate to the city levy are as uh, we anticipate them to be, and a host Uh, of other uh, efforts and initiatives that we're really excited to be able to show to the public over the coming weeks
0: i'm glad you brought that element of it up because one of the concerns i've heard from some of the critics and you you've seen them uh, many of these too, i i'm sure lou is do these numbers even jive i know where do they get these numbers from uh pricewaterhouse cooper's of course with their reputation but the fact that you went through and had discussions with the city auditors too to to understand that those numbers go through that prism as well uh so that i don't know if everybody's going to be on the same page but we're going to be talking the same language anyway
3: well, if that language is math, you're you're exactly, yeah, exactly. right. Uh, you know,
0: we understand <laughs> I, and I'm that. not fluent in it, by the way. That's why I need to, to have an explanation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I'm a lawyer, Bill, as you know, and I'll confess I'm yeah. not being terribly fluent in it either. Um, but as you know, I think there was enormous uh, and justifiable concern in the community about the implications financially, given the pandemic and what it's done to city budgets. and And we understood that completely. And in fact, our efforts here are intended in the short, medium and long term to significantly enhance the city's finances as a result of the unique nature of how this game's hosting plan has been put together. And so what you're going to hear uh, is that consistent with the Pan Am funding model, which uh, had municipalities shoulder roughly 10 to 12 percent of the total games cost and their and their requirements uh, were limited to funding infrastructure in their municipalities, that the expected cost of the city of Hamilton uh, will be relative to any other multi-sport games put on in this country um, nominal and we'll give specific numbers uh, we'll show where we feel that those uh, those funds will come and what the anticipated impacts will be on the city negatively and positively.
0: And, and there's going to be a breakdown I would assume uh, when you talked about facilities and I'll go back to one of our earlier discussions Lou, uh, the concern there was uh, can we really afford capital costs like this? Uh, uh, you, and I know at that time you and PJ said that look at we're doing a, an audit as it were of potential facilities and things that might already work uh, you've you've established that list I guess by now have you
3: yes, we have and and look it's it's really critical to understand what the purpose was of our engagement in the process to begin with uh, the city is a surrounding region as well the province the country indeed suffering from the economic impacts and other impacts of the pandemic uh, we we are in a competition if you will regionally for the attention of senior levels of government in the private sector for financial support for economic activity. And and this is a way, a very powerful global way of incenting all levels of government and the private sector to make investments in our region, in housing and other areas, justified by the value that the Games can provide. And so our efforts have been intended to modestly improve existing facilities where possible, um, to leverage private sector facilities where they exist, to look at really desperately needed sports and recreational infrastructure in Hamilton and region that, that could be benefited and then to find appropriate funding support and in some cases and significantly that has involved the private sector in coming to the table to help off- offset costs and lastly we understand that a legacy of operational costs to the city and its taxpayers would be a concern and so in every case uh, we have sought to find funding or to create legacy support for venues that we are uh, creating for the games so that there is no additional costs on the city coffers to maintain facilities that are created new.
0: You uh, remember some of the questions. I know you remember some of the questions that city councillors themselves were asking when you were before them back in August, Lou, uh, about wanting some some meat on the bones, so to speak. Uh, You know, tell us what you're going to do. Tell us where you're going to do it. Uh, Tell us exactly how this is going to come out and look, uh, you know, when it's opening day, for instance, if, in fact, we're successful in putting this whole thing together uh, for the city. Uh, Do you feel confident that those questions about details are going to be answered when you go back before council?
3: Well, very much so, Bill. Um, So, you know, beyond the uh, venue planning and accounting analysis, we have relied upon and had the benefit of the work of PCL uh, to create um, uh, its cost estimates around venues. Uh, They will be providing a letter supporting the validity of those cost estimates. Um, With respect to the venues themselves, uh, all, all of them, I think, will be obvious. There are situations and circumstances in which depending upon what senior levels of government choose to do. There are venue sites that aren't in Hamilton that currently exist that could be used for relatively minimal cost, uh, which present, I think, an attraction alternative for us. But in the end, of course, you know that there's a dynamic intention between the desire on the part of some councillors to see investments in Hamilton and the desire on the part of other councillors not to spend any money. And we're going to to create a a method by which those issues can be discussed by council and senior gut levels of government and resolved to their satisfaction, not ours.
0: Yeah, that'll be an interesting discussion. Uh, You're right. I mean, you know, when you get 16 people around the table like this, uh, it's, very very rare that you're going to get unanimity on anything but uh if you're dealing with facts as opposed to uh just speculation that it makes it i think uh, the decision a lot more clear for an awful lot of people and i i'm getting the sense that, that there's there is support on council for this uh, i i don't know if it's enough to carry the day we'll i guess find out shortly which begs the next question i guess because uh, we're just about to have to wrap it up here uh what's the drop dead date that you actually need a commitment from the city that yes you're in and you're out
3: I, so, I don't have an answer to that right now as a consequence of the discussions that, that have been unfolding over the last several days, uh, particularly with senior leadership at the province, which are encouraging. Uh, I think there's a resolve on the part of everybody at this point to look very carefully at the extent to which this unusual property can be used to advance pandemic recovery efforts. Uh, because the Federation has agreed to jointly design this, we have the flexibility to do something that has a really modest uh, impact. Uh, provincially federally and, and municipally but has high yield and so we don't want to force a decision quickly by anybody we want to get to the right decision and so on the 7th we're going to give city council a full briefing in consultation with the mayor the resolve then is to allow the process to continue because further work certainly with the provincial government is necessary before anything is needed decisively in hamilton and we're going to take our time to do it right
0: well, and I know that there's a lot more you'd like to say, but uh, the, the Coopers thing is embargoed, until, I, and that's only right. City Council should see it, and then the public can start commenting about it once it becomes a public document. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a, a thorough discussion about that after that happens, Lou. Thanks again for spending some time with us today for this update. It's a very important project. Uh, it could be a life-changing project for the city, and uh, we might, as you say, want to make sure that we have all the details and that we get it right.
3: Bill, thank you so much for your time.
0: We'll talk again soon. Uh, Lou Faporti, always a uh, great conversation when luke comes on here to talk about hamilton 2026 and the uh the, the bid for the games uh this is the bill Kelly show glad you're with us today 980 cfpl in london and 900 chml in hamilton uh nearly one in ten london police employees is off the job these days it seems to be a, a relatively high number i want to bring uh joe coto into the conversation joe of course is the uh, director of government relations and communications with the ontario association of chiefs of police uh joe thank you so much for the time glad you could join us today
4: i'm happy to be here
0: uh, let's talk stats for just a second ten percent of the uh, the uh, the workforce now that's not just uniformed officers we're talking about everybody support staff and everything else a ten percent off the job rate absentee rate is that an alarming number to you
4: it, it's actually uh pretty consistent uh across the province in terms of police services and uh uh you're right it's not just a frontline officer that's what uh, when we see a, a number like that we we tend to think oh the police officers off off the job but uh increasingly in policing we have a lot of civilian members not just sworn members and uh and so what we're finding is actually 10% is pretty consistent across the province uh the large small police services it it's a fairly consistent number actually
0: which is surprising in and of itself and and you have to ask yourself why then is is there a commonality through an awful lot of this is it is it stress related I, I know that a lot of police services across the province over the last little while have, have seen uh-huh. uh, a concern about mental health issues within police services and I know they've they've made some accommodation for that with uh, with extra help and extra coverage and things of that nature but that may also entail some time off Is is that a major factor here Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's
4: really important that we understand that when we're talking about uh, both police officers and civilian members of the of a police organization. Uh, we're talking about people in a um, in a profession uh, that is high-stress. They deal with a lot of issues that, uh, obviously, the rest of us uh, would not want to deal with. That's why we have uh, our police uh-huh. personnel and also our, our civilians. A lot of them are people like um, uh, the, the communicators who take 911 calls, and they do face a lot of high-stress situations. Uh, it's not just a physical situation. Um, challenges of the job the frontline officers face those every day they put on a uniform they know that uh, they may be called to deal with those you know physical things it's also the emotional uh, toll that it takes on our people and it's also the mental which you 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 you've hit on the on the head there we're increasingly understanding uh the the importance of recognizing the stressors the mental and emotional stressors of the job both for the frontline police officer and those who support them and so um that's where we're getting we're getting a lot of uh of of the folks that are involved in in the number that you you put out there it's um um uh, out of that 10% we're talking about 8% who are off on either sick leave, uh long-term disability, uh, uh, uh maternity or paternity leave and WSIB. Those that's a large chunk and then you add things like uh training and uh and obviously negotiated collective bargaining things uh, around vacations and and uh, time off and as well as suspension without pay. Those all factor into that 10%. is
0: the situation worse because of COVID now, Joe. I mean, it's t- yeah, talk about a stressful situation. Made yeah. even more stressful, obviously, by the pandemic. Yeah, that's, uh,
4: that's a that's a very good point because we're only now really assessing the 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 impact of the pandemic. Um, like all first responders, uh, they our officers and 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 our communicators as well were uh, sort of on the front line of having to deal with an unprecedented. Uh, occurrence that uh, that required a lot of um uh you know commitment from the organization to make sure that we have the people on the road the people um who are supporting our officers and so i think that uh, in the next little while we're actually going to see the tangible um results of what did pandemic the pandemic do to our officers in terms of the stress levels uh and as well as um, uh, their uh, their own uh, emotional uh, stressors uh, in terms of uh, protecting their own families, you know our our officers uh, went out there every day, were exposed to the public during a, a pandemic, um knowing full so well that they could be coming home to the to their families and uh, and we had to be very careful with that. We obviously talked a lot about to to our officers about uh, training uh, and uh, personal uh, protection equipment. Uh, it's a little too early to say the pandemic had any tangible increase or had an increase on that 10% that we're talking about. I would expect that it had some uh, impact for sure. A lot of it probably, I would say, the mental and emotional part of the job.
0: I've got about a minute or so left, but it's a very important question. I just wanted to get your read on it, mm-hmm. if I could, Joe. Uh, and we applaud places like, well, London Police Services and Hampton Police Services, among others, that are making accommodation now for uh, mental health issues and dealing mm-hmm. with that and, and making programs available. But there wasn't, in the past, a, a reticence by an awful lot of these frontline officers to actually take part in that. That If I admit that, it's a sign of weakness. Is that, yeah. is that situation getting better?
4: It's getting better, but it, we're no nowhere near where we need to be. And what we're talking about there is really a stigma, and that's really yeah. a police culture issue. Uh, every organization, or every profession, has a its own unique culture, and policing being tough and uh, sucking it up it has been traditionally part of, of of the job and so we are really emphasizing the fact that our officers that you're not doing anybody any favors including you and your family by not coming forward and saying i have an issue and putting programs in place that uh that will help them deal with um the the mental part of the job and i think that's it's uh It's an evolutionary process. I think that the officers who are hired today uh, will be much more comfortable uh, saying, I need help. But in the past, absolutely, from management uh, to the front lines, um, it was not something that you admitted because it was a sign of weakness. And we have to change that. That's impacting the 10% number. Um, And there's probably people out there that should be getting help that aren't getting help. I would encourage those, specifically those police officers who are in that situation, uh, don't be afraid to add to that number. We'll deal with you know, having your back because uh, we want them to get better, get back on the job, and have a full and, and productive life.
0: Well, exactly. Because if you don't get that sort of assistance, sadly, that stress uh, can manifest itself in some very tragic ways. And yeah. you know, we all know those statistics as well. Joe, great having you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me,
0: Joe Koto, of course, uh, who is with the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.